Well, it is so good to see you, uh, Providence family. And if you are new with us, a guest, welcome. We are thrilled that you have joined us. I hope you've had a good week. Uh, it's great to sing with you. In two weeks, we get to celebrate Easter. Are you excited? All right, that was really pathetic. But uh, we're really excited about Easter, and I trust that you are. You just weren't ready for that moment, okay? And so um, uh, we at Providence, uh, we love the fact that Jesus Christ did rise from the dead. And so we want to celebrate in a way that bears witness to the hope that we have that Jesus did rise from the dead. And there's a few things that you can do in two weeks to actually help us to celebrate well and to care for people, okay? The first thing is that uh, all of us can be praying. And I want to ask you specifically to be praying for people who will be here who do not know Christ as Savior and Lord, that God would open up their eyes and help them to see that Jesus Christ, when he rose from the dead, that that's the most consequential moment in the history of the world, and it has personal effects even in their life. And so we want to pray that God would move. And uh, all of us know people. And so I want to ask you to invite, uh, invite a neighbor or a friend. There may be somebody. I would ask you just to start praying. God, is there anybody in my, uh, in my life, in my workplace, in my neighborhood that I need to invite uh, to church on that weekend? The third thing is to worship. And uh, I hope you do this every single week. But if you don't, this is a great Sunday to start. And that is, I want to encourage you to worship the Lord before you get here to worship the Lord. You see, when our hearts are ready, which means that we come and we've already confessed our sin, we've already thought about Jesus, we've already been absolutely amazed once again, it's fresh again, what he has done and who he is. What happens to our worship is uh, is it's unlocked from apathy. And I want to encourage you to walk in these doors come Easter and have your heart already ready to worship. And then there's a fourth thing that you can do, and that's serve. You see... The fact is, is uh, on that Sunday, uh, at least here at Providence, uh, we normally see a spike of about five or six hundred people. Most of those five or six hundred people are going to come to this hour and the next hour okay, of the three because eight o'clock is pretty early. Uh, and the fact is, is that we really want to be able to provide them a seat. But if you did that, we added 250 to our room right now, they wouldn't fit. And so on Easter uh, weekend, uh, we are planning a fourth service, and it's going to start on uh, Saturday night. So we'll have one at Saturday night, three on Sunday morning. Now, what can you do to help? Well, first of all, on Saturday night, we need folks to help in the parking lot, the front doors, just to greet people as well as with all of our kids. But then there's another way that you can, you can serve, and you can think of it in terms of your participation in the outreach, and that is... That if you would be willing, if you can, now you may be inviting someone to this service with you, in which case, um, don't all clear out because we're going to need people this hour as well. But if you can come on Saturday or Sunday at 8 a.m., bright and early, all right, Easter Sunday morning, uh, we we would ask you to consider uh, to free up your seat just for that Sunday at this service hour. what we really want to be able to do is to, um, is to say to all of our guests um, that we have a place for you in this room as opposed to often some other room with a screen. And so if uh, you can just think through those ways, uh, we, would, we would love for you to, to uh, help us celebrate the fact that he rose from the dead. So let's bow and let's pray together toward that end. Father in heaven, we look to you 
And the greatest thing that we want to take place on Easter is for the name of your son, Jesus Christ, to be exalted in our life. And as a result of that, I pray, Father, that we who already know Christ, Lord, that we, we would be encouraged that, Lord, that day as it draws near, Lord, that our hearts would be made ready. And that would be a special day for us. But we also pray that it would be a special day for those who may for the very first time hear the gospel and see that it's consequential to their own life and eternity. And so we pray, God, that you would do a miracle. I pray, God, that you would use our time right now as we think about this idea of not being ashamed to be associated with Jesus Christ. I pray that as we examine the life of Jesus this morning, God, that you would help us to be interested. Would you help us to believe what your word says? And would you give us courage, Lord, to apply it to our life? Would you speak through weakness once again, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Mark chapter 3, I would love for you to turn there in your Bible. If you don't have one, there's lots in the chairs near you. And if you don't have one at home, take that home as a gift. Uh, there's actually three different places in Mark that in a moment I'm going to read from. Mark 3, Mark 6, and Mark 8. So if you can multitask, you can hold a finger in all of those places. If not, I will give you time to turn. But Mark chapter 3. You know, in 1947... Jackie Robinson, in a feat of courage and ability and skill, um, he broke a barrier in baseball where he, he became the very first black man to, to play in that league. And the fact is, is uh, there's a lot of people in this, uh, in this nation uh, that were not ready for it. In the movie 42, as well as the scene in this statue right here, which actually now lives in Brooklyn, what we're told was that one day in Cincinnati, uh, the fans there, that they were hurling out such racist hatred towards Robinson that eventually his teammate, his name is Pee Wee Reese, and he left shortstop and he walked through the infield and he walks over and unashamedly, not only did he stand next to him, but he put his arm around Robinson's shoulders as if to say, I am not ashamed to be publicly associated with this man. It was an act of courage, and I, the fact is I don't know much about either of the men personally or about their friendship, how long it endured. But what I do know is this, is that when you think about Jesus Christ in our culture today, we have all observed the ridicule that has been directed and that is now directed not only at Jesus, but also his word. And it causes each one of us to second guess. We felt the risk of publicly and willingly associating ourselves with Jesus Christ. It's only natural when you see people throwing darts at a board, do you really want to stand that close to the board? Paul urged his son in the faith, his name was Timothy, and he says, Timothy, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. What we're going to do over the next four weeks, starting today, is to look at four different areas of Jesus his life, his death, his resurrection, and then the message called the gospel that wraps not only who he is, but what he accomplished. We're going to do that over four weeks. And my hope in doing that is that your eyes and your heart, just like mine, will see that there are a million valid reasons to feel shame in this world, but being associated closely with Jesus Christ is not one of them. It's not. And the fact, though, is that every single one of us, whether we would affirm that with an amen or not, is that there are times when we have felt ashamed, when we've not exercised the courage that we wish that we would have to speak up for Jesus Christ. And so I want you to know that if you are ashamed or have felt ashamed, you are not alone 
and you are not undone. For not only is he worthy, but he's also forgiving. And this is what we find in Mark chapter 3, Mark 6, and Mark 8. is three different episodes where people who knew Jesus, they felt a certain way about Jesus. The first two, his family and his friends actually felt shame for being associated with him. And so we want to read these. So Mark chapter 3, verse 13 says this. And when he, that's Jesus, went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him, and he appointed twelve whom he also named apostles so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. And so Mark shares the names of each of these 12 men. And then we get to verse 20 and it says this. And then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him for they were saying he's out of his mind. Now, fast forward in your Bible and also in the life of Jesus to Mark chapter six In Mark six, Jesus, who had been walking through towns in Galilee, comes back to his hometown called Nazareth. And this is what we're told in verse one. It says that he went away from there and came to his hometown and his his own disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue and many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon and are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own town and among his relatives in his own household. Then we skip over to Mark chapter 8. And now Jesus wants to ask these 12 followers of his, his apostles, some questions. And he begins and he says, who do all the people tell you that I am? Who are they asking about? Who do they think that I am? And they give several answers. And he says, no, that's good. But let me ask you a question. Who do you say that I am? And in that moment, in time and space, Peter stands up and he says, you're the Christ. You're the promised one. The word means Messiah, promised one, savior. You're the one that's been promised throughout the entire Old Testament that's going to come. It's going to make things right. It's going to reconcile us back into a right relationship with God Almighty. You are the Christ. Now notice what Jesus says a few verses later in verse 34. And calling the crowd to him, With his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? And what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation Of him will the son of man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his father with the holy angels. Now, Providence, what do we as a people, what do we say in response to what we just read? There's a few things. The first is this, is that we are not ashamed of Jesus' unusual life. And the fact is, is it was unusual. He said things and did things that literally nobody else says and nobody else does. 
And I want you to think about how hard it was to internalize for the people who knew him growing up. You see, for just for for three decades, for 30 whole years, Jesus had grown up in a little town called Nazareth. It was little. It was rural. Everyone knew everyone. Everyone knew, knew everyone's business. Jesus was a little boy. He grew up. His neighbors said, hey, there's little Jesus. Jesus, you want a little cookie? Jesus was playing with his brothers. He's with his friends out playing soccer. They're playing ball. Like Jesus was a normal kid. He would go to worship with his family. As he continued to grow, he learned to trade. He was a carpenter of some kind. He was a builder of some kind. And then suddenly, 30 years later, Jesus leaves town and he begins doing and saying things that his family and friends simply could not comprehend. I thought this was just Jesus. And now you're saying, what? And so let's look at a few things that he did. One of the things he did was he made stunning friends. In our text, the first one that we read, it says that he picked 12 men, apostles, disciples. This was quite a motley crew of 12 men. This was made up of fishermen. There was one tax collector, which was a legalized thief. There was also a zealot. Simon the Zealot, a zealot was an anarchist, someone who was trying to overthrow the government. And Jesus pulls these 12 men together and says, this is going to be the people that I'm going to disciple. These will be my closest associates on the earth. And people looked at this and they're like, how does that 12 fit together? And how could it fit together with you? It's interesting that just like our culture, we say, hey, don't hang out with bad people. But isn't it amazing that Matthew chapter nine, verse 10 says that tax collectors and sinners came and reclined with Jesus. They were eating with them. And so instead of shunning immoral people, Jesus was having dinner with immoral people. And it was, it was, it was hard to understand. And then there was another group of people that for culture, all the little children, they were all, they were all taught throughout their life. This is the people to emulate. This is who you want to model your life after. This is who you esteem. It's these people that are called the Pharisees, this religious elite. And Jesus, not only did he not want to associate with him, but he publicly condemned them on a number of occasions with words such as this. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, for you're like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly they appear beautiful, but within you're full of dead people's bones. And so it looks like to the people who've observed him for 30 years, man, he's, he's got his wires crossed. He's hanging out with the wrong people. He's wanting to be like the wrong people and he's wanting to shun the wrong people. Not only did he make stunning friends, but he made stunning claims. You read through the gospels, not only before, but also after these passages that we read and you find some amazing things. One day, the high priest actually looks at Jesus and asks him a question. He says, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed or the son of God? Are you the son of God? And Jesus says, I am. Now imagine being his childhood buddy. What? I am. And Jesus continued to exclaim, to, 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 to uh, share just exclusive rights over, over things that literally no one's allowed to say. He says that he's the only path to heaven. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. He claimed to be the source of rest. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He claimed to be the ultimate and only 
victor over the grave, over death. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. And whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. He claimed to have all authority. Matthew 28, 18, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He went around saying, I'm like the bread of life and I'm the light of the world and I'm the good shepherd. Nobody has ever walked this earth and said these kinds of things. Stunning friends, stunning claims, but also stunning demands. Audacious demands that he would make of other people. Let me just give you a sampling. One day, Jesus, he goes up on a mountain with his disciples and this huge following comes up and he begins teaching them. And right as he begins, he says this. I want you to know that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And the reason is because they're not entering either. The scribes and Pharisees were there. It's not on the screen, but you continue to read that passage. And just a few verses later in verse 48, he says, let me tell you who's going to heaven. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Do you know who goes to heaven? Only morally perfect people. That's it. You say, well, wait a minute. I got a problem. We all have a problem. But here's, here's the amazing thing. You see, the gospel, which is the good news of the Bible, actually says that Jesus Christ knew that heaven was a place marked by absolute holiness, absolute moral perfection, and that no imperfection could enter. So you know what he did? He brought perfection to this earth. He lived without sin. And then he went to a cross where he died for our sin. He was buried in a grave and he rose from the dead. And he says, if you'll believe in me and trust in me exclusively, I will take away your sin and I will give you my perfection. It's called justification. In other words, you have to be morally perfect while you're on this earth or you have to go with the one who was. Jesus Christ. What a demand that he put upon others. He says in John 3, 3, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. John chapter 5, verse 23, he says, whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. Do Do you see what he says here? He says, regardless of an individual's sincerity or passion for their God or religion, If a person is not honoring me as the son of God, that person in all of their faith is not honoring God. That is such brazen exclusivity. It's like, this is it. What a demand. And then he goes on and he says, and by the way, everything I say is not only authoritative, But it's helpful to you. He says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Now, just imagine you have a friend that you've grown up for 30 years. Played soccer, eating cookies with, worship next to. You come to church and suddenly you you see him out on the street corner. And they're claiming to be the son of God. The only way to heaven. That they have all authority. And they're demanding you not only to acknowledge them, but to worship this person. Imagine how difficult that that would be to absorb. And this is exactly what we read in Mark 3 and Mark 6. His own family came to seize him. They planned an intervention because they thought he was out of his mind. 
And later on, when he comes to Nazareth, his hometown, it says that they took offense at him. The word took offense is where we get the word scandal. In other words, they said, you are scandalizing us. You're embarrassing us. You're shaming us as a community of people called the Nazarenes. We, we don't want to associate with what you're saying. And yet, because you're from here, we have no choice. They're saying, aren't you like lowly, uncredentialed Jesus? Little house on the corner, lots of brothers and sisters. Yeah, you played ball in my front yard and now you want me to bow and worship you? You're shaming us. So stop it. You see, we're not ashamed of Jesus' unusual life because number two is also true. We're not ashamed for we have seen Jesus' unrivaled supremacy. You have to ask yourself a very important question, and it's this. If it is true that God made a promise to send a rescuer who is his son, and if it is true that that son would come to this earth and accomplish something, and then invite everyone to believe in him, And if it's true that this rescuer cared not only about the religious, but the irreligious, and he knew that both of their paths did not lead to heaven. And if it was true that he was the only way, that he had all authority, and that he required honor, what would we want him to say when he got here to the earth? You see, when he says these things, it's because they're true. I'm using words right now to describe thoughts in my own mind, what's on this paper, what's in my heart. I'm using words. Well, God also used words. It's a metaphor that he uses in John to describe that he wanted to tell us something, to reveal something to us. And so he used his son. And this is what he says. He says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father who's full of grace and truth. You see, Providence, we are not ashamed of Jesus Christ because Colossians 1 says that he is the image of the invisible God. And we are not ashamed of his teaching on life and death and money and marriage and sexuality and servanthood. Why? Because long ago, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And we are not ashamed of his miracles. Do you know why we're not ashamed of the fact that the Bible says that he actually healed people and walked on water and created bread out of, out of, out of, out of bread just by breaking it, giving thanks and just continuing to make more and more so that thousands could eat? Do you know why we're not ashamed? Because the Bible says that by him, all things were created. That means he has creator rights. He's not bound by gravity because he created gravity to serve us, to protect us. The laws of nature that he created. He has the authority to live above. And so he can walk on water and he can talk to wind. He has authority over evil. He has authority over our body. And we're not ashamed of his miracles because he is 
the creator. And we're not ashamed of the opposition that he knew at this time of his life and that we now know that he experiences now even in our own culture. And do you know why? Because that opposition is the very thing that brought him to a cross where he died for our sins. And after making purification for our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. You see, we see the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ. Oh, we see an unusual life, unusual friends, unusual claims and demands that he made when he was on the earth. But we as a people also see Jesus' unrivaled supremacy. And so we echo just like Peter. We say, surely you are the Christ. You are the son of God. You are the only way, the only truth, the only life. You are the light of the world. You are the good shepherd. You are the son of God. We're not ashamed of Jesus Christ. He has unrivaled authority. And then there's another thing that we look here in Mark 8. There's another reason we're not ashamed, and that is because we have taken up our cross. Now, I want you to notice that Jesus actually uses this language to describe normal Christian behavior. In other words, if you have not taken up your Christ, uh, cross, then Jesus does not describe your life as normal Christian behavior. He says stuff that's absolutely stunning about a cross. You see, when a man was seen carrying a cross, everyone knew that that was the last thing that that person was ever going to do. They were taking their cross to a hill where they would be crucified. And so associated to the cross. What a cross signaled was four different things. It signaled opposition. People were clearly opposed to this individual, either who they are or what they've done. There was opposition involved. There was shame involved. Normally, a criminal was crucified naked in public in order to say, everybody, I want you to know that this kind of behavior is not going to be tolerated. It was a shameful thing to carry a cross and to be hung upon a cross. It was also something that was so marked by suffering and pain. And it ended with imminent death. This is what he says is normal Christian behavior. And he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And so the question is, who in their right mind would choose this? And Jesus says, this is who would choose it. Someone who first denies themselves. Christianity is not about your interest. It's not about clever ideas. It's not about logic. It's about denying ourselves and seeing Jesus as superior to whatever path we're walking. You see, our old self doesn't want opposition, shame, suffering, and death. What does our old self want? It doesn't want opposition. It wants approval. We want people to think highly of us, to be encouraged by us, and to encourage us. It doesn't want shame. It wants honor. It wants people to approve of us and to say, you're amazing. I, I, I love you, and I respect you, and I need you, and we want you around. We want to honor you. That's what our old self wants. The old self certainly does not want suffering and death. Why? Because we want comfort and safety. We want more pillows and we want a longer life. And so to take up our cross means that we count the pain of associating with Jesus as preferable to a life without him. Do you see what that's what he's saying? 
He's saying that this is, this is what you can do. You can stack up everything that your natural heart wants, which is approval and honor and comfort and safety over here. And Jesus says this, to take up your cross, what it actually means is to deny yourself what you think you actually want and to count the pain of associating with him as preferable to a life without him. You see, every single one of us has to come to the place in our life where we ask the question, is Jesus worth it? Not, how do I feel about him? Not, do my parents believe in him? Is Jesus worth denying myself to carry his cross? And so what he does, if you notice our text, in verse 38, it's, It starts with the word for. In fact, every next verse, it begins with the word for or because. In other words, he wants to give us the evidence of why it's actually a trade up and not a trade down. To deny ourselves and take up our cross. He says, for whoever saves his own life. What does that mean? It means whoever saves his life, his approval, his honor, comfort, safety. He says, you're going to lose it all anyway one day. But whoever loves his life for my sake will save it. Then he asks two questions about our soul, basically saying, hey, what's worth your soul? And the answer is nothing. There's no amount of honor or security or comfort that's worth your eternal soul. And then he moves into shame and he says, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him, will the son of man also be ashamed? This is what he's saying. He's saying that when we are ashamed of Jesus Christ, what we're saying is that everything that I love is going to pass, and yet I've chosen it ahead of Jesus, who will live forever. And you know what makes this so horrible? Is that we choose all this honor and approval, and not to get the honor and approval from wise and godly people, but he says from adulterous and sinful people who we will one day leave anyway. So this is the ultimate eternal trade down. When we live on this earth, And we say, I'm ashamed of Jesus Christ. So what do we do with this, Providence? What do you do with this? What do you do with Jesus' words when he says, whoever is ashamed of me in this world, I will be ashamed of when you stand before my father. What do we do with that? So let me give you a few applications. The first is this, is let's trust Jesus Christ with our lives. You see, our culture does something that is so tragic and that is it makes feelings the authenticator of what is true. You've heard people say who are married, maybe, you know, I just don't know if I love him or her anymore. And what we mean when we say that is if I could simply discern how I feel, then I would know what is real and true and therefore know what to do next. And so we give our feelings final authority. And I urge you, do not play this game when it comes to your soul. Do not play this game when it comes to Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus is not worthy because we feel he's worthy. He's not honorable because we honor him. In fact, we're all the earth to be ashamed of him. He would be no less who he is. He is who he is. He is the only way to the Father. 
were all the world to reject it, it wouldn't make it untrue. He's not an idea. He's a person. And so what I want to urge you to do is to follow Jesus' brothers. Oh, they didn't start so well. John 7, 5 says, for not even his brothers believed in him. But then Jesus Christ died for their sin and he rose from the dead. And in 1 Corinthians 15, we're told that Jesus went and he appeared to specific people. And it says the first person that he appeared to was James, which is not the brother of John. It's his brother. We know that because it says to James and then to all the apostles, which would include the other James. This is the James who wrote the book of the Bible. This is James, his youngest or his next youngest brother. He comes and appears to James and James becomes so convinced. Clearly, you imagine that conversation. Hey, I told you, you know, and he becomes so convinced that he becomes the pastor in the church in Jerusalem until he's martyred when they threw him off the top of the temple. And do you know what happened next? His brother Simeon said, well, if you're going to shut him up, then I'm going to start preaching. And he starts to preach. They can shut him up. And so they say, I got another brother. His name is Jude. And he wrote one of the last books of the Bible. What a family. Do you know why there was such courage? They didn't fear the grave because they'd seen their oldest brother conquer it. And our goal here is not to study and to admire the family of Jesus. It's to join the family of Jesus. Mark 3.35 says, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. And so this morning, I beg of you to trust Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. Admit to him that you cannot save yourself. Lean upon him with your belief and confess him as Lord of your life. And the Bible says that you will be saved. I think another application for us who've already done that is let's confess our, our shame to Christ. You know, Jesus really does feel our shame. This is not a victimless crime. You remember Peter, not long after he said, you're the Christ, the little girl says, hey, weren't you with him? And he was too ashamed to be associated with Jesus in the moment that this, that this picture seeks to describe. That moment when he's warming himself and Jesus is being condemned and accused and it says that on the third time he says i swear if i know the man jesus christ may i be condemned and at that very moment it says that jesus turned and peter and jesus caught each other's eyes our shame is not a victimless crime jesus is not an idea that feels nothing when we reject it Oh, he feels our shame, but the good news is he forgives our shame. So I encourage you, if you think about your life, you think about the opportunities that I had this week and the number of times that I had to be courageous to say, I want you to know something about me. Jesus Christ saved me. When I wasn't as courageous as I wanted to be to invite people, whatever it is, this is a great opportunity for us to say, God, I ask that you would forgive me. I confess my shame to you. And finally, let's confess our faith in Christ. Oh, Christian, your faith is so personal, but it is not private. Romans 1.16 says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And so I encourage you to invite. I encourage you to go. I encourage you to share your story with the hope of sharing his story. And you know what? His plan for you, his path for you looks differently. But every one of us has an opportunity to respond with what we believe God wants us to do. 
And when we take a step of faith, what we're saying is I'm not ashamed. And I want to show you a video of some people here at Providence and beyond who are saying, this is what God's called me to do. And I am not ashamed. So watch this. I'm Thomas West, and this is my wife, Elizabeth, and we're in the process of preparing to move to London, England to plant a church. We have two kids, Perry Elizabeth, who's five, and Shepard, who just turned three. For the last seven years, I've been the college pastor at Providence Baptist Church, and God has been at work in our lives as we've been living right here in Raleigh, living life on mission right here where we are. God has been slowly preparing us for this new venture of moving to London to plant a church. We're Daniel and Paige Evans. We've got three kids, Hannah's seven, Eli's five, and, and David's two. We, we dated through college and, and then had some time apart right after we graduated. And during that time, I think God did a, a huge work in both of our hearts, both in our own relationships with Him. And really during, during that season, gave us both a, a calling to God's mission around the world. I spent a season in Central Asia, came back, we got married. And, and then Providence sent us graciously back to Central Asia as a family. In August, we went on with Summit Residency, where they have been preparing us for what it would look like to move to London and plant. A series of trainings have been very helpful for our family and for our team. There are ups and downs in that because it's, it's a big prayer to pray, to say, okay, Lord, I'm ready to do this. I see this is where you're leading me. I see this is where you're calling me. And we just pray that he would open the doors for us. And he continued to open door after door after door for London. And then my prayer also turned into having the courage to step through those doors that he was opening because they were big, scary doors sometimes, exciting to see his faithfulness and his just how he's gone before us in so many ways and paved the way. We came back in 2013 and the prayer was, God, if you want us to be overseas, again, provide the opportunity, but most importantly, provide the team. And he's done that over and abundantly, forming us into a close family friendship with the West over the last five years in community and now building a ministry partnership. Just really overjoyed and thankful that he answered that prayer directly. Uh, it'll be very hard for our older two kids. Uh, they've had a, some emotional moments uh, processing that they'll be away from everything they've known so far, their school, their house, their grandparents. The biggest ways that, that folks can be praying for us is for the kids and, and their transition. He's leading leading us to something that's it's, it's, it's hard to see sometimes. Like It's hard to understand everything that he's leading us into. But he is so good in how he continues to provide and care for us as we take what feels like these, these trembling steps of faith. So this is the uh, London launch team. What um, I guess a year ago started with, uh, with God's call upon a single family is mushroom now to a team of 25 people. We can't have all of them speak, but on behalf of the whole team, I'm going to ask Thomas just to share a few words. Thanks, Brian. Thanks, Providence family. Um, 
just a just a little under a year ago, uh, we stood before you and, and shared with you the, the the dream for planting in London that God was laying on our hearts and the the process we've been we've been going through with it. And God has done so much in uh, in the last year. Um, he's uh, he's prepared uh, our family, the West family, the Evans family. He's brought together this amazing team of of twenty five people, um, not all of which have uh, visas and jobs lined up yet, but are believing God standing here before you today in faith, believing God that he's going to provide that. He's, uh, God is over 80% funded uh, a three-year budget of $1.5 million. Um, God, is, God is simply great, and he's good. And while we don't have everything figured out about what's about to happen in the next couple of, uh, in the next couple of uh, months and years, we are eager to plant a church that will, that will plant churches together. So um, on behalf of, of, of my family, the Evans, um, this entire launch team before you, thank you, Providence, for sending us. Um, thank you, Brian, for your leadership and care over the years for this amazing pastoral staff, um, this elder board, um, the whole church family. Thank you for the nurturing and care that makes moments like this possible. In so many ways, we are able to go. Do you give? So we say thank you. Amen. It's fantastic. So as uh, you can uh, see, is this is a little bit more than a mission trip and that these people are actually securing jobs and visas to stay there uh, in the hope of planting a church that would plant churches. And in Acts, what we're told is that when God raised up a calling in people's lives to leave a place and they go into some other work to say, we're not ashamed of the gospel in that place. What we find is that the church gathered, they laid hands on them and they prayed and sent them out, which is what we're going to do now. So if you would, would you bow and would you pray for them and with us? Father in heaven, we thank you for your amazing grace in each of our lives. And I thank you for the calling that you have placed in each individual on this stage and for those who are not here this morning. I pray, Father, that you you would be so gracious. And our prayer, our ultimate prayer, Father, is that people would come to faith in Jesus Christ as a result of them going. And not only come to faith in Christ, but Father, that they would, they would then become not ashamed. And as a result of that, that this one plant would plant other churches. They would plant other churches. We pray for London. We know that it's a place that lives in spiritual darkness. That so many people, they're not even conscious of the reality of God. And so we pray, Father, for your mercy and your grace upon the people Would you give the team great endurance? Would you give them creativity? Would you provide for their needs? Would you give them protection? God, would you guard them from the schemes of evil? I pray, Father, that many people will come to faith in Jesus Christ. And so we lift them to you and ask for your blessing upon each person. Give them what they need to do exactly what you've called them to do. We ask for wisdom and grace and love. And I pray, Father, that in each of their hearts, Lord, that they would not be ashamed of the gospel. And we pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.